and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to find out what really happened with the magic bullet. Um, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Donors Trust and ExpressVPN. More about them in a little bit. Uh, so today we're doing, um, I saw some stuff on Twitter the other day about this new book that was coming out. And I said to myself, self, this is in your wheelhouse. This looks interesting. And um, uh, we just went ahead and, and grabbed the author and we're going to talk about it. I will, I've already confessed to him that I have not finished the book, um, which is a nice way of saying I only really just recently started the book, but it's really interesting and I have interesting questions. Um, so our, our guest today is Paul Matsko, author of The Radio Right. How a Band of Broadcasters Took on the Federal Government and Built the Modern Conservative Movement. It's from Oxford University Press. Paul, welcome to The Remnant. Thank you so much for having me. So um, first, tell us about yourself. What's your day job? So I am the editor for Tech and Innovation at the Cato Institute. I, like many other um, disenchanted academics, had a hard time finding a tenure-track job as a historian, which is my, my background, my training. Uh, and uh, it turns out that doing a podcast is a pretty reasonable facsimile of uh, lecturing in the classroom. I mean, you don't get that mm -hmm. in-person vibe that you get from from talking to students in the classroom, but you get to do a lot of the same intellectual work. You can pursue topics that you find interesting and get paid to talk about it. So I run a podcast called Building Tomorrow for the Cato Institute. So um, Russ Roberts, who I'm sure you know or know mm -hmm. of, I remember he used to say how, you know, people say, why do you do this podcast when it has, you know, such limited reach? And he said something along the lines of, I don't know, there are like 50,000 people who listen to this. Imagine speaking to a stadium full of 50,000 people. Yeah. You wouldn't say it's limited reach, you know? Yeah, um, sure. Uh, you know, for most professors, if you ever get to speak to a room with 2,000 people in it, it's like huge, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, no, I... I I'm with you. It's it, the, 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 I was late to the podcasting thing. I haven't quite made up my mind entirely about it. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm pot committed since it's a big part of the strategy of this new media venture I've got. So I have to, uh, to some extent, say I love it. I do love the listeners and all the rest. I just get very self-conscious about it. So um, my favorite question, as people know, uh, to be asked on a book tour is, what's your book about? I'll give you the elevator pitch. So if you've heard of Rush Limbaugh, and most people have, they get you couldn't write a history of American politics over the last 30 years uh, without talking about Rush Limbaugh. Well, if I told you there was a uh, there were broadcasters a generation before Rush Limbaugh that had an even large re larger relative audience. So you have the Rush Limbaugh's before Rush Limbaugh. They were so successful at building an audience in the 1960s that um, they in, they kind of invited the most successful government censorship campaign of the last half century. JFK found them deeply annoying. They prevented him from getting done what he wanted to get done in terms of legis legislation. And so he went after them with the full power of the executive branch, with the IRS and the FCC 
and shut down the first wave of mass right-wing radio uh, using the fairness doctrine. So everything that we're familiar with today in terms of our political landscape and the role of talk radio, there was a version of that in the 1960s that the government shut down. So, I mean, one of the things I think is interesting about this, and I, and I do want to talk about the, the censorship part, and I know that's the big thrust of things, but um, as someone who spends, has spent a big chunk of his life reading conservative history and forming my own views on it, um, you know, one of the interesting things you do from the outset is you kind of take dead aim at the the George Nash narrative, the uh, the Buckley centric mm-hmm. view of mm-hmm. of conservatism, and while um, I will I will not sit here idly if you spend a lot of time bad mouthing <laughs> Buckley, uh, I, I at the same time. Um, I'm, I'm much more sympathetic to a lot of those kinds of arguments. As I've talked to Matt Continetti, who's been working on his magnum opus on conservative history, it's not that the Nash story is wrong. It's really just that it's one story, you know, of conservatism. And there are other things that right. were happening that he kind of left out that um, are important parts of the narrative or important parts of the story, but sort of like, I mean, the thing about the Nash book, which I love, is, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but it's sort of like the drunk who's looking for his car keys where the light is good. <laughs> he went and he read all of the stuff that, you know, conservative intellectuals were writing, and he told an intellectual history from that. And I think part of the problem is that a lot of the larger academic world just decided, okay, this is the story. And they didn't look much past it. It's sort of like, it's like, like, yeah. The Nash book kind of dominated that market for so long that people took it as one, it's not just one story, but the story of where conservatism comes from. And um, and you tell this, you make this point about like these guys who I've, you know, I've seen references to a million times in places like Mannion, these, these, yeah. these conservative talk radio guys. But I, I doubt one in a thousand pretty literate conservatives have any sort of cultural or intellectual knowledge or memory of a lot of these figures. So why don't don't you just sort of give your version of where the, the, the first wave of the radio right or the Christian right, and maybe define those terms because I have lost count of how many new rights there have been in the last 50, 60 years. Um, And it gets very confusing very quickly. Um, So why don't you just give your story about like, give us your take on, where conservatism and mass media conservatism comes from in the into the early 60s yeah you have a i think you're 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 picking up very much on um the his well we would say historiographical among historians but the intellectual streams that i'm I'm talking into in this book And, and i would say part of this issue the the focus on buckley as the progenitor of the new right of modern conservatism in the 50s 60s 70s there's a degree of survivorship bias right so mm-hmm. you know if you're the one person who survives a plane crash well there must be something special about you that explains why you survived the plane crash um it was faded it maybe something special you know I, I i was uniquely qualified to survive the plane crash um but like, no, you just happen to statistically be the one person who survived. So there's a degree of that here, which is that Buckley and National Review, they persisted, whereas a lot of the broadcasters I'm talking about did not. 
Now, of course, that's because the federal government used the powers of taxation and licensing to shut down these guys. Well, National Review is a magazine. There is no licensing program for magazines. There is no, I mean, you could use IRS, but the, uh, Buckley wasn't the target because he was considered small potatoes by the Kennedy administration. Um, they basically never talked about him. If you look at their correspondence, Buckley doesn't ever really show up. Um, they were worried about radio because radio is mass media, right? The National Review can reach 60,000 people in the early 1960s. There's 60,000 subscribers, which is not bad. That's great for a magazine. Um, Carl McIntyre, the largest of these conservative broadcasters, could reach 20 million people a week over the radio. So if you're doing the political calculus and you're worried about re-election, who are you most worried about in two years or four years? You're worried about the broadcasters, not about Buckley. So there's some survivorship bias that he looks more, even more important because he's the last man left standing uh, from, from this 60s period, in a sense. Um, there's something else I'm actually coming against as well. There's a kind of a popular thread on the right that we've just been discussing just now. There's also the version on the left at the time, and, and this is why Nash made such a splash, uh, is because on the left, it was tempting and it was normal to say, look, conservatism, this new thing. And at the time, we, we, we forget how radical conservatism was in the 50s and 60s. Conservatism had been dead all but dead since Taft. Uh, Taft's attempt to, to the old guard in the Republican Party lost out to Eisenhower and the new style moderate Republicans. Everyone just assumed conservatism was over. It was a, you know, a, a 19th century ideology that had lingered into the 20th and it was permanently gone. So when it returns in the, with these broadcasters, with Buckley, with, you know, eventually with Reagan, it was, seemed very radical to people in the way it doesn't seem radical to us today because now conservatism, conservatism is quite mainstream. But on the left at the time, that meant conservatism was a thing that we defeated in World War II. Fascism is a kind of conservatism. Uh, this old, you know, backward way of thinking, it's been defeated. And where it remains, it's not an intellectual uh, system. It's it's not, you know, it's not a, a world It's view. irritable mental gestures, it's right? I mean, irritable mental, yes. Yeah. yeah. So Hofstadter and others say it's the paranoid style. That's what motivates conservatives. It's just an impulse, irritable gestures, right? Um, so I'm also trying to push back against that, which is you need to take conservatism seriously as a movement and not just as an intellectual movement as Nash does, but also as a social movement, as a popular movement. It's grassroots. It's not some top-down, astroturfed um, um, invention of conservative intellectual uh, and political elites. It's not just Goldwater and Buckley cooked this thing up. It's a mass popular movement. Um, so I'm pushing against both. And so that's why Nash hits like a thunderbolt when it when it comes out is because, hey, here's someone who takes their idea takes conservative ideas uh, seriously. And um, that that's why it had such an outsized uh, effect in the in the 70s when it first came out and why it's continued to kind of cast the shadow today. But as you noted, it um, it leaves out a lot. So it he was interested. He's a, he's an intellectual historian by um by 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 nature and so he's interested in ideas and the men who produce them and as i note in the in the in the book it's very much a gentleman's club so it is the men mm -hmm. who produce ideas um and none of these broadcasters make it in there in fact uh this reflects buckley himself uh and buckley says we're not interested in the the people who just gin up popular enthusiasm the hurly burly of activism it's ideas that are the future and so we're going to 
create a journal that yells stop, stands athwart history and yells stop, uh, a journal of ideas to elevate, uh, the, you know, not, not this activism stuff. That's his uh, implicit sideswipe at, at broadcasters um, at the time. So uh, that's what I'm trying to do. So I'm pushing against both a, a left-wing kind of historiographical narrative that was popular in the 70s uh, up until the 90s, really, and then also a right-wing kind of narrative and you can see why that's popular. A lot of these guys are really embarrassing. Like the, the people I'm writing about, they're fascinating, but they're also, I mean, they're deeply racist, for example. They tend to, they oppose the desegregation. So if you can sideline them, it's a way of, as uh, historian Heather Hendershot puts it, making yourself seem respectable by comparison. It's like, it's like forgetting you have that drunk great uncle. You know who always shows up, embarrasses you, embarrasses you, and says racist things at the family get-togethers. If you just kind of conveniently leave him off the family tree, but in this case, it's not the drunk uncle; it's your, it's, it's the father. I mean, it's it's a major figure in the family, and you just prune out the genealogy. You can see why that's um, convenient. Um. So, I'm you know I am I am sorely tempted to make all sorts of arguments about the influence of national that that elite to elite plays in terms of influencers are actually very very important it is yeah. um and that i mean i i know that firing line doesn't come on until 66 but uh and i and i will grant you i mean it's, it's this is a true story my first national review cruise and just so you know in case you didn't i was at national review for 21 years uh my first national review cruise i get on the boat i get down i get to dinner i sit next to some well uh, quaffed lady. And she says, so what do you do? And I say, well, I write for the magazine. And she says to me, what magazine? <laughs> and I'm like, it's a national recruit. Like I just kind of thought that would be implied when I said yeah. the magazine. Yeah. But, uh, I, people tend to really downplay, uh, the extent to which sort of, it's sort of making your point that, mm-hmm. uh, big chunk of Buckley's influence actually was from the TV show and not from the magazine. And that, and, and one of the reasons sort of also getting to your point, one of the reasons why Buckley became this major cultural icon and figure was that in the late sixties and early seventies, the, one of the foremost projects of a lot of the left and the mainstream media too, was to make the archetypal conservative uh, George Wallace. Right. Mm-hmm. The, or mm-hmm. some sort of version of that, you know, the angry, racist, quasi rednecky kind of guy. And here was this guy who could debate Galbraith and, you know, and Mailer and these kinds of people to at least a draw. He knew all these fancy words. It was a it was a way to sort of. A kind of virtue signal thing that you could say. I'm a conservative, but I'm also I, I'm not a. Um, you know, the, but, I'm, but I'm also an intellectual about it, you know, yeah, and that yeah. was something that there was a real hunger for in the late sixties. But anyway, that's that all that aside, um, just for two seconds, cause it is one of my great obsessions. Um, uh, talk to me a little bit about the role of father Coughlin mm. and, um, and how come he's not considered the beginning of this story of right wing radio or left-wing radio. I don't want to give a, give up my, uh, my priors on this. Um, but, uh, you know, 
he's in most like if you read the Doug the the Brinkley book, yep. you know, Voices of Protest, he kind of makes the point that that mass you know the mass media age really begins in the 30s with radio of the time. Yeah. So here, here's I mean you're absolutely right. Coughlin is is uh, overwhelmingly important. He is the most prominent. Um, if we'll if we accede that he's some kind of conservative, which I wouldn't, but you can make an argument for. I, I'm obsessed that he's not. But yeah, I, right. I, I wanted to I hold mean, that in abeyance. He's so. anti New Deal, but to be anti New Deal isn't the same as being conservative. There were actual conservatives around the 1930s who were also anti New Deal. Anyways, I, I won't go down that. But let's just say he is not left wing. He's he's some sort of other, um, and uh, he so hugely important in the 1930s. But even there, uh, unless you listened to his radio station in Detroit, right? So he owned a radio station. Um, unless you were listening to his radio station, you maybe heard him uh, in one time slot. Uh, you know, there were some other stations that would rebroadcast what he said. Uh, but usually it was a single time slot a day or maybe a single time slot a week. Um, that That's very, that's just, quali- it's quantitatively different from what I call the, the first wave of mass right-wing radio, which is this phenomenon that we're again familiar with today. We all get that when I say talk radio, you don't just think of one person, Rush Limbaugh or Michael Medved or whoever. You think of this phenomenon where there are entire stations where you hear nothing but conservative programming all day, mm-hmm. every day, all week. That uh, That is different from hearing one person once a week or once a day in a single time slot. And so there were other conservative voices on the radio in the 1930s. Coughlin was most successful, but others who, again, they might got, they might have had one time slot. They were like a, a comp, they would do some commentary for 15 minutes on the CBS stations once a week. Um, more of like an Andy Rooney kind of role or something like that. Um, that is different from this 24-7 kind of coverage. And the first time you really, across most of the nation, get 24-7 conservative radio, I shouldn't say 24-7 because nighttime radio was different, but all day long, conservative radio is in the 1960s, that turn from the 1950s to 1960s. So that's what sets apart Coughlin and earlier uh, precursors, conservative radio broadcaster precursors, from this first wave of mass right-wing radio in the 60s, just the sheer volume. So you could go... I mean, you could spend your whole day on your drive into work. You could listen to, uh, you could listen to you, any one of the. I mean, there's there's a dozen conservative broadcasters who air on a hundred or more stations nationwide. So the odds that you um, could go all day long and just hear from Billy James Hargis, Carl McIntyre, Clarence Mannion, you know, the Citizens Council Forum, etc., that had become normal in the '60s and it was unheard of prior to the late '50s. Um. Just because some people will tear up their remnant bingo cards if I don't just get this out, I am a I'm 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 kind of a grassy knoll obsessive about how uh, yeah. uh, Father Coughlin was not right wing. Um, it is true that he was anti Semitic, but uh, the, the people like um, uh, Father John Ryan, who was the foremost Catholic. Uh, clergyman defending the New Deal considered him considered Coughlin to be on the side of the angels when when Coughlin was in fact pro New Deal. He begins by saying it's Roosevelt right. or ruin and the New Deal is Christ's deal, and it's only when the New Deal doesn't go far, far enough, enough to the left that Coughlin then says it's terrible and he attacks it from the left as a 
sop to, you know, to our industrial overlords and capitalism and probably the globalists and all of that. And um, the way historians have treated Coughlin has driven me around the bend at times because I have enough problems taking ownership of the people who do belong in my lineage. (laughs) Um, I shouldn't have to have the people who don't too. Um, And, but it is funny. It does show you that these weird tribal sociological lines, um, Pat Buchanan in his biography talks about in his neighborhood, you could walk down the street and every open window you passed, you could pick up, in real time, Coughlin's radio show from one window to another, and you could hear it walking down the whole street. And it shouldn't, if you just take that even a little bit seriously, um, it shouldn't be that surprising that Buchanan was one of the most, one of the first major right-wing figures to sort of break with limited government, with yeah. free markets, with free trade, um, and go back to his sort of more tribal roots of just seeing politics as a contest of power from my team yeah. versus your team. I think you're exactly right there, which is that um, if there is a lineage, it's again, it, it, part of this is the the brute simplicity of talking about right and left as if that right. means much. I mean, the, the fact that that's the side of the French National Assembly that that two sets of factions in the early uh, 18th century happened to sit on, that doesn't mean something in all places and all times. So part of that's that as we're dealing with is the ramifications of that simplistic, oversimplistic generalizations. Um, But there is a lineage. It doesn't run through fusionist conservative conservatism, but there's a lineage from Coughlin to your Pat Buchanan types to your, your Steve Bannon to even to Donald Trump suspicion of globalism, suspicion of immigrants. I mean, with Pat Buchanan, some of the anti-Semitism charges have been, you know, so Mm -hmm. there you actually do have kind of a direct uh, lineal, dissent. But that's a very different thing from the fusionist conservatives of the mid-20th century. I mean, take Carl McIntyre, the, again, the biggest broadcaster at the time. He's a he's a philo-Semite, which was uh, the difference between anti-Semite and philo-Semite sometimes was it was more marginal to um, to contemporary you know, Jewish thinkers at the time, because it was always a pain when you have these people who professed how much they love Jews, um, but then would advocate for policies that were not great for Jewish Americans. So there, there was always still tension there, but he was not anti-Semitic. It was actually abnormal. It, it, you have to go down the charts of top broadcasters in the 60s to find someone who's actually anti-Semitic. Um, and so that's there's there's big differences between the fusionist conservative broadcasters of the 60s and their kind of quasi-precursors in the 30s and 40s. So the conventional wisdom or so the uh, conventionalism is the wrong word. The the sort of the mainstream liberal historian consensus is you correct me if I got this wrong, but is that evangelical Christians or even you know, Protestant America, whatever you, we want to call it, uh, was essentially um, quietist. I think is the word that you would often hear, right? That they were not involved in politics except for this sort of social gospel moment in the progressive era. And then they went quiet again and until like the, was it the fifties? And then, and then they went quiet again. And then all of a sudden America was like 
stun, you know, in sort of no one expects the Protestant Inquisition when they uh, came out in big numbers for Jimmy Carter. And then all of our politics since then has been dominated in large part by the fact that they then switched and supported Reagan. Right. Is, is that basically the story? And why is it wrong? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you're, you're right on there. The usually it starts with the scopes trial and the, the version of the story is that, uh, you know, evolution is on trial, John T scopes in the 1920s. Um, and, uh, the fundamentalists lose William Jennings, Bryan, you know, fundamentalist, uh, uh, populist politician. Uh, he he represents. I mean, he actually is a lawyer in the case. Or and um, they, or no, he testified. He's a witness, right? Um, anyways, he so at this moment, fundamentalist Christianity gets embarrassed on a national stage, and that's how. And and because of that, they retreat into like a kind of uh, uh, ideological ghetto. They go back into a cultural bunker and don't engage with politics until some period later. And then people argue about when they reemerge from the bunker. All of this is bunkum, right? Like, it's not mm-hmm. a bunker, it's bunkum. Uh, what is going on, though, is that I, I, I think people pay way too little attention, historians especially, we pay way too little attention to the structures um, that guide, the, the under, underlying structures that um, on which social and political movements are uh, overlaid. Uh, the Marxists has, have a mm-hmm. term for this, it's, uh, we focus on the epiphenomenal rather than the phenomenal. Um, you have to look at these underlying structures. So, well, I mean, in this case, the reason why uh, fundamentalist Christians retreat in the 1920s has nothing to do with some sort of sense of national embarrassment. I've never met a fundamentalist who's embarrassed <laughs> about what they believe. That's not a thing that it, it, it retreats because of it. Um, it well, it's because, is uh, as Joel Carpenter, historian Joel Car- Carpenter, describes in Revive Us Again, his book, uh, they fundamentalists lose all their institutions. They lose their schools. Uh, there's a fundamentalist modernist co- controversy. They lose their universities. They lose their denominations. They lose their mission boards. They lose their publishing houses. They lose all the institutions that amplify a movement, that reproduce a movement. And then they have to rebuild them for the next couple of decades. They found new schools like Bob Jones University. They found new so schools. Maybe yeah. I missed it in the distortion or something. How, how did they lose their institutions? Uh, so they're in a, it's a, you know, inter-religious fight over whether the fundamentalists or the modernists, whether liberal Protestants. Oh, it's like or, the mainline guys get to hold on to everything. They hold on to everything. And they kick out the wahoos. Exactly. Of. So the reason why okay. fundamentalists lose their kind of national influence or their voice doesn't have to do with embarrassment. That's that's epiphenomenal. That's that's on the surface. It's they lose their structures. The I mean, mm-hmm. it, it'd be like imagine if suddenly National Review got shut down. Yes, tomorrow. You know, the government came in and cracked down on them, and someone tried to tell the story of why the National Review disappeared from public. You know, from no longer had influence on the on the public on the public discourse. If you said, well, they must have just kind of lost their heart and given up. He'd be like, no, it's because the government shut down the magazine and it's hard right. to start a new magazine. <laughs> like institutions yeah, matter. Yeah. So in general, that, so, could you say that? I mean, just, Cause I find this interesting and I hadn't really focused on this before. Yeah. Could you say that embarrassment does play a role in it, but it's not the embarrassment of the fundamentalists. It's the embarrassment of the sort of pinstripe cookie pusher mainline Protestants who want to separate themselves from the William Jennings Bryan time, or is that just wrong? I'm just curious. No, no, I think there's. I mean, they, they definitely were embarrassed by, uh, yeah, by by these fundamentalists. Um, so there, I mean, there is something something there. 
But when you remove those structures, it takes time to rebuild. And so sure. all these moments, the same thing. So why does fusionist conservative, why this conservatism in the 50s and 60s, why does it take time? Not because it lacked for popular support. There were lots of conservatives across the country, but because social movements require organization and institution building. And it takes right. decades to build those institutions up to the point where they take over a major political party during the Reagan years. Uh, and the rest is, well, I mean, all of it's history, not the rest is history. It's all history. <laughs> no, no. And, and it, just so listeners understand, I'm not trying to be disparaging of the the evangelical Christians here. I just think there's an interesting historical irony. If if my take on it has some truth to it, I, again, I don't know. Just because if you look at how much the mainline Christians, the sort of moderate, squishy Christians, screwed up their institutions, you know, um, in part because they expelled people with actual religious fervor and passion, you know, from yeah. it, instead made sort of like reform Judaism is more about doing nice things than about, you know, religion. Yeah. Um, this is kind of interesting. You're picking up on a great thread here, Jonah, which is, um, uh, so there's a component, most of the book is a political history of broadcasters who happen to be religious. Uh, yeah, but there, I, I promise we're going to get to that part. Yeah, yeah, but there is a there is a religious history through line here, which is in the mid-20th century, you cannot exaggerate how powerful and influential liberal Protestantism is. The National Council right. of Churches has 40 million affiliated, you know, denominational members. Um, it has, you know, the Dulles brothers are mainliners. I mean, you, you name a cabinet official, a congressperson, the odds are they go to a mainline church to National Council's affiliated church. So they are huge, hugely influential in the mid-20th century. But they had a problem, which was that their clergy were way more liberal than their parishioners. And mm. right-wing radio broadcasters, most of these top guys, McIntyre, Hargis, Mannion, they're all either clergy themselves or very active lay, uh, mm. involved laity. Yeah, and, Mannion, wasn't he a, a dean at, at not a, at Notre Dame? Yeah. Notre Dame. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but, and he's very active in the Catholic church as a lay person. Um, mm. And, uh, but they, they, I mean, basically these, these liberal pastors write back to the national council of churches and says, uh, our parishioners, our congregates keep coming to us and saying, I heard on the radio that the national council of churches is uh, in, infiltrated by communists. And uh you, you got to do something to help us out. We can't tell them otherwise because I only get to do a little homily once a week, you know, from the pulpit. They can hear right-wing religious broadcasters every day, all day. And so right. it's a reminder that no matter how powerful your, in, your, your structure is, your institutions, you have to be, it, it actually also can make you, um, you lose your nimbleness. You lose your flexibility, your ability to respond quickly, to innovate and grow. National Council lost that and lost its people ultimately. I mean, this is partly the story of of why the where the beginning of the main line decline came from. Um, and there's a cautionary tale there for us today for for people who are uh, you, there's a cautionary tale for people on the right, both religiously and politically, which is that um, it doesn't matter how often if you're if you're a uh, I don't know Russell Moore part of the Southern Baptist Convention, it doesn't matter how often you get to preach in the pulpit once or twice a week. Your parishioners are listening to Fox News, many of some of them all day, every day, and you're going to be right. drowned out. And so yeah. you, that's a that's an issue. What happened to the mainline Protestant movement could easily happen to evangelical Protestantism today. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I did warn you that that tangents on this podcast are a feature, not a bug. Before <laughs> we started, so okay. uh, so I want to ask you another question because again, I find sure. this stuff really interesting. 
Um, so when Kennedy is assassinated, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there is this amazing, it is almost like, you know, there are these moments in American history where um, it's sort of like what H.G. Wells would call an open conspiracy, except there was no prearrangement to it. It was like this uh, sort of a Hayekian spontaneous thing where everybody seems to be on the exact same page about something that doesn't actually conform with the facts. Mm -hmm. And so Kennedy gets killed and instantaneously the elite media, mainline Protestants, um, the left, they all just insist that he was killed by hate, Mm -hmm. right? This amorphous hate. And Dallas was the city of hate. And uh, there's that famous line from Jackie Kennedy where um, she laments that he had to be killed by some little Marxist or some little communist and not killed for his work on civil rights. And yet the culture, that the sort of camelotification of everything is somehow manages to pull off this idea. I mean, this is like Jim Pearson's book about how the Kennedy assassination kind of broke main elite liberalism because they couldn't reconcile his death with the reality of it and yeah. the circumstances of it. But I'm just wondering this, the stuff that you're talking about with the, uh, the dominance of the mainline churches with the much more liberal types. Um, uh, could you say, was that response driven in, in part by those institutions? I mean, I'm just, it, it, it's an, it, it I, I'm struggling to figure out exactly why I'm interested in asking you about this, but well, I, I, I think you are picking up. This is well say when you've sparked the thought in my mind here, which is it is um, we forget. I mean, it seems quaint to us today. If you go watch movies from the 19, early 1960s, like Seven Days in May or Doctor Strange Love. I mean, classics. Mm-hmm. I mean, the well, Doctor right. Mentoring Candidate, Mentoring Candidate. We forget the extent to which people in general, but especially people on the left, uh, were terrified that American democracy was about to end. And the way it would end would be by some sort of conservative cabal of right-wing generals, whether you're Douglas MacArthur types or Edwin Walker, who I talk about in my book, who, you know, as I note in the book, uh, General Edwin Walker uh, is thinking about running for president in 64. And um, Oswald, before taking a shot at Kennedy, takes a shot at Edwin Walker. Right. And his wife says, why'd right. you do that? And he says, well, if you got a chance to kill Hitler before he was Hitler, wouldn't you? <laughs> Edwin, right. And what that means is, is that uh, Oswald, like many people on the left, they legitimately worried that American democracy was not going to end from a communist invasion. It was going to end from a right-wing military coup. Um, this is fueled by the fact that you have right-wing generals saying crazy things. Um, yeah. Uh, so it's, But it's also proof, I mean, this is one of my big peeves is I believe there's a paranoid style in American politics. I just Absolutely. disagree with Hofstadter when he says it's purely a product of the right. Oh, there is a both. left wing. Yeah. yeah, there's just American paranoid style, period. You know. Anyway, go on. I'm sorry. So JFK actually gives filming approval to the to the crew of Seven Days in May so that they special filming approval in the White House. And when they came to film, and if you've seen Seven Days in May, you know that the kind of setting is that there's a proposed nuclear test ban treaty being proposed and that's what the the victorious general scott wants to defeat because he thinks you know we're right. going to weaken american nuclear power well the filmmakers didn't have to bring in extras 
because there was an actual protest of, a, of the nuclear test ban treaty that Kennedy had proposed at the White House the day they filmed. So they just filmed the actual <laughs> protesters. Of, so, I mean, the way in which that fiction imitated real life and the, the fears of the Kennedy administration, the fears of all these folks. I mean, when it comes to the actual assassination of Kennedy um, and of, you know, Sirhan Sirhan killing Robert Kennedy, it's important mm -hmm. to think of both assassinations. They're both deeply political. They get depoliticized, even at the time, in a sense. Uh, they get framed as, you know, mentally ill. If you ever hear the description of RFK, it was me mental illness. That's because the politics were inconvenient for everyone involved. Uh, Lyndon Johnson didn't want people to look into the ties between the Castro regime and Oswald because he was worried that if they found something, he'd have to go to war with Cuba, with a nuclear armed state. Mm -hmm. and he didn't want that. But he privately expressed, we know this, it's in the archives, he privately expressed his belief that Castro was responsible for the Kennedy assassination. It's a tit for tat for our, the CIA's attempts to kill Castro. Mm -hmm. Whether or not that's true, that's what he, that's what he believed. So in both, both, both Kennedys were killed uh, for deeply political reasons, and both were essentially blowback for U.S. Uh, Cold War imperialism. I do want to get to the Kennedys. I don't want to take the bait on Cold War imperialism. Um, but I threw that I, out there for you, Jonah. <laughs> um, um, I do want to circle back to one point that you made earlier about the sure. importance of institutions um, with how when the, when the sort of evangelicals lost their institutions, they lost mm -hmm. their power. Um, I'm a big Yuval Levin fan. I'm a big believer that institutions, it's one of the reasons why I started the dispatch is one to model behavior. I think we are lacking and create positive institutions on the right that are, that are fusionists, that are believe in liberty, but also have, um, respect for sort of cultural values. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so happy that donors trust is a sponsor of this podcast in times of national emergencies, those with a giving spirit and the desire to build up civil society try to find ways to be helpful. And that's when it's good to have charitable resources ready to deploy when they're most needed. Donors Trust offers donor-advised funds. You can use these funds as your own charitable savings account and manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, tax-advantaged, and private. Donors Trust clients are using their funds to support local charities working to help their communities while continuing to support the think tanks and liberty-minded organizations that believe federalism, our civil liberties, and our Constitution shouldn't get lost in times of emergency. Now is the time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and join their community of liberty-minded donors by opening a donor-advised fund. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo. That's D-O-N-O-R-S-T-R-U-S-T, DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo, for our six reasons to use a donor-advised fund and learn how a donor-advised fund can preserve your ability to give charitably. That's DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo. We thank Donors Trust for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant, the Kennedy administration. Um, I'm sort of, I'm a, I'm a very amateur student of, there's a trend in American history that doesn't get talked about a lot. And one of the reasons why I like this book is it filled in a, a blank for me. Um, I often will talk to people about how, you know, you look at the censorship of the Wilson administration, which was massive, right? I mean, at least that was out in the open, but 
FDR did all sorts of things with the males that people kind of forget and that he had his own sort of police state kind of stuff. Um, and the, and then you fast forward to the Clinton administration, there was like the Fabiani memo and the Sid Blumenthal talk about grassy Knoll um, stuff um, about the vast right wing conspiracy. But the Kennedy stuff, I didn't know that much about. So why don't you just sort of, and that's sort of a big crux of the book is what the Kennedy administration did with talk radio and why is it sort of relevant today? Yeah. So Kennedy in 1960, it's a really closely fought election, him versus Richard Nixon. He beats Nixon in part because of, uh, well, uh, vote shenanigans, ballot shenanigans in Illinois and Louisiana. Nixon probably actually won, but Anyways, both of them after that, we all know Nixon's paranoid after that, which is why all of his dirty tricks and Watergate and all that in 68 and 72 um, are a result of his paranoia because he lost so, it was such a narrow loss in 1960. So uh, he didn't trust the polls. No margin was wide enough for Nixon. But the same thing was true of Kennedy. He He knows that he won by a hair and probably illegitimately in 1960. So he's worried about his own reelection. I mean, he doesn't know he's going to, you know, get a bullet in the head. So he's thinking about real the the, fr- the primary goal of every first term president is to become a second term president. So that's what he's thinking about right after inauguration. What can he do in, in, to better his odds in '64? And one of the things that he he was the first president to encounter mass right wing radio, uh, which was this nascent thing. But it was a problem for him in the Democratic primaries in Virgin West Virginia. Uh, it's the first Democratic p- primary that has a that doesn't have a significant Catholic population. Kennedy's, of course, Catholic. That's a big deal right. uh, during the campaign. West Virginia is the test. It's overwhelmingly Protestant. So if Kennedy can win West Virginia, then he can win anywhere, and he'll win the nomination. And that's what happens. Um, his own campaign tells him, "Here's what you need to worry about. You need to worry about these hate preachers, radio preachers." who attack your, your Catholicism on the air constantly in West Virginia, the most prominent of whom was Carl McIntyre, who covered basically the whole state with radio stations by 1960. So he knows that right-wing radio is a problem, and it continues to grow during his administration. It worries him in 1960 as he's running for president. He, it, it helps defeat a variety of legislation, uh, makes his life really difficult with the nuclear test ban treaty, which I alluded to earlier. Um, it's just a thorn in his side. So winning in 64 means taking down the radio right a notch. So he commissions his allies in the labor labor movement, uh, Walter and Victor Ruther. They put together a thing called, well, we'll call it colloquially the Ruther Memorandum after meeting with uh, Robert Kennedy. Uh, and in that memorandum, they lay out, here's step-by-step what you should do to, to um, you know, disarm the radio right. Uh, the Kennedys then, and the point of this book, this memo, we all knew it existed prior to this book. It has been mentioned mm-hmm. before, but what's never been proved until this book is that the Kennedys actually acted on it. And I proved that with a variety of internal White House, you know, confidential memoranda. I actually have Kennedy on tape uh, discussing discussing their plans for taking on the radio right. So, um, but they acted on all of the major, all the major proposals in the Ruther Memorandum the most notable of which were to use the Internal Revenue Service to target right-wing broadcasters with audits. You can audit the heck out of them. And even if ultimately they win in court, which most of them do, um, it takes a decade, a decade of court battles, court costs. Meanwhile, your donors aren't 
being able to tax deduct, you know, deduct their donations from their mm. taxes. So it's a pyrrhic victory when broadcasters win in court eventually. So you you audit the heck out of right wing broadcasters to dry up the supply of donations to them. The other arm of this is to go after them using the Federal Communications Commission, which licenses broadcasters uh, uh, or licenses stations that air the broadcasters. So if you run a radio station or a television station, you have to get a license from the federal government to do so. Every time those licenses go up for renewal, uh, according to this set of rules that the FCC starts enforcing for the first time in the 1960s called the Fairness Doctrine, if someone has complained about your compliance with the Fairness Doctrine, you could have your license pulled. And so the idea was, uh, if you're worried about that, you're going to stop airing right-wing broadcasters to avoid getting these complaints against you and to avoid losing your your wherewithal, losing your your station. The fairness doctrine is one of these things that sounds great in theory. I mean, who's who's against fairness? It's like, are you the sort of person who votes against the like saving children bill? You know, like fairness doctrine sounds good. It was meant to encourage stations to air like all the major, which really meant both mainstream Republican Democrat views on controversial issues of public importance. So on current events. So if you aired someone saying the Vietnam War is bad, you should air someone saying the Vietnam War is good. That's what the Fairness Doctrine was meant to encourage. There was also a component which banned personal attacks, or if you made personal attacks, you had to give them response time. So if I said Mm -hmm. Lyndon Johnson is is a, a son of a biscuit, Uh, he would be allowed to then say, I need free response time to say, no, I'm not. I'm not a biscuit. Right. You know, Um, that uh, the problem. And so in theory, that's what's meant to happen. But it was really easy to weaponize. If you all if the only people you enforce it against are conservative, if is conservative speech, uh, then it's a way of suppressing of having uh, of suppressing conservative broadcasters and creating a chilling effect in which stations don't want to air conservative um, attacks on the Johnson or Kennedy administration um, because if they do, they'll have to out of their own pocket give free airtime to respondents. So it discourages overtly political or partisan speech and it is done so very purposefully. No, I mean, this is not an unintentional effect. Um, It is purposefully done by the Kennedy administration to silence dissent with the administration and its policies. Um, It's highly successful. It, It turns the radio right of the early 60s into a shell of its former self. We're talking about McIntyre going from like 475 radio stations in 64 to less than 100 by the end of the decade. Um, It's a very effective way of suppressing political dissent. So that's, that's the tool. You can use the fairness doctrine. You can use IRS audits to silence conservative broadcasters and suppress, you know, pushback against the administration. They did all realize this was a bad idea. And part of the reason we we know some of this information is that Nixon started using some of the same tools to suppress dissent against his conduct of the Vietnam War, Mm -hmm. um, or at least the threat of fairness doctrine enforcement. And uh, and so all these former like Kennedy and Johnson era um, operatives said, oh, that's right. If we get to use it when it's our turn, the other side gets to use it when it's their turn. Uh, whoopsies. And so they, they were willing to talk to uh, contemporary um, scholars about their involvement. So it's, it's really quite a breathtaking story. I think the best contemporary corollary, if uh, those of your listeners, I'm sure are pretty well politically plugged in a few years ago during the Obama administration, 
Uh, you've probably heard about the Lois Lerner scandal involving sure. uh, tax-exempt approval for Tea Party groups. Now, there was no evidence that the Obama administration itself, it wasn't like you know Obama said, I want you to go after the Tea Party. At least there's no evidence of that. And I, I, I think it's unlikely. I think she just was motivated, ideologically motivated, and did it on her own remit, as far as I can tell. But imagine if you found evidence that Barack Obama directly ordered uh, his attorney general and the head of the IRS and the head of the FCC to go after Tea Party groups. He told Lois Lerner, I want you to shut down these people who are opposed to ACA or opposed to Obamacare. What level of scandal would that be? That's a Watergate-level scandal. And here we have exactly that happening with the Kennedy administration in the 1960s. It's the Watergate that that everyone missed. Mm -hmm. Well, um, um, one of my father's closest friends and my brother's godfather was Victor Lasky. Oh, yeah. Who wrote the book. It didn't start with Watergate. Um, So none of this is like super shocking to me, but it is really interesting. He was he was he he knew it. I mean, he he wrote about this. He said, look, if Kennedy can have a get Hoffa squad, he can have a get Bircher squad, John Birch Society. He can have a get. He he said, look, if you can just because you go after organized crime, you're going to use those same tools to go off after Black Panthers and go after the John Mm -hmm. Birch Society. And this is uh, an authoritarian capability. Um, that's kind of baked into this, these, these systems, these rules, these agencies. Uh, you should be worried about that, whatever your ideological presuppositions are. And he was right, Victor. On the, on yeah, the ball. I mean, there's a great quote. Um, I found it in the Luchtenberg book on the, or one of the Luchtenberg books on the New Deal, and um, where Alan Cranston during the Watergate hearings, mm-hmm. who's a senator from California, says, you know. I'm obviously paraphrasing. For 30 years, I've been hearing my friends on the right talk about the dangers of the imperial presidency and how it's a, you know, it's a threat to liberty and we need to be concerned about these things. We need safeguards against presidential abuse. And I always ignored them. And I guess maybe they actually had a point because like <laughs> yeah. finally at Watergate, it was a president he didn't agree with, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But that was sort of what I was getting at before. The things that Democratic presidents have done in American history. I'm not excusing Watergate. You know, Watergate is bad. Um, but like, you know, the, you know, and, and the Woodrow Wilson stuff, I will take my tiny, tiny, tiny sliver of, of credit for helping move the chip of conventional wisdom about Wilson. Um, but FDR is still sort of holy ground. And, you know, and he played all sorts of yeah. games with presidential power. It's always funny to talk to college kids and you explain to them that there was a time when the postmaster general was this incredibly powerful political fixer job because everything went through the mail and like all the information went through the mail, you know, and, and, um, and, you know, the ability to withdraw someone's franking privileges or withdraw someone's postal rate for a magazine was basically, or a newspaper or whatever. It was like, um, if you wanted to reach a mass audience, it was a de- it was the lo- sort of Damocles over yeah. a lot of people, and and lots of administrations abused those kinds of powers, um, and lots of presidents taped their recordings, taped oh, yeah. their conversations. But it was only with Nixon that all of a sudden it's like, oh my god, he taped his conversations. You know, every like weekend for ten years, I've been listening <laughs> to C-SPAN play Lyndon Johnson's you know phone conversations. You know, yeah. um, anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and, and here's where yep. You and I, I mean, like folks like you and I who have, and and like many of our listeners too, uh, on on your show who have heard you talk about this, 
you get that like look when 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 like uh donald trump uh, refers to his desire to raise postal rates for the washington post and for Am- or for amazon because he doesn't like the fact that jeff bezos criticized him through his organ the washington post um, we get how big of a deal it is for a president to openly say that he's interested right. in doing that. I mean, there's no sign he actually has done that, but like there's a long history of presidents using that to suppress criticism of their administration. So it sends off alarm bells for people like us. Yeah, yeah. No, and also, although I've always had a, a theory, because I think he was anti-Amazon before the Washington Post was a huge problem for him. And I, I always thought that part of it was that, you know, He's a guy who a big chunk of his business is collecting rents from retail. Yeah. And they're all taken in the neck from Amazon. And he thinks that's unfair, right? You know? Yeah, that's true. Um, whether it is or not, totally separate issue. Um, so, um, so fast forward to today, um, you know, you every 15 to 27 minutes, you hear someone talking about how we need the fairness doctrine back. Um, and it's weird if you if you read a lot of the wrong people on Twitter, um, you'll find that they kind of want a fairness doctrine for social media for, to protect the right in all sorts of different ways. Um, this is probably more in your wheelhouse as podcast guy than, than historian guy, but maybe there's an overlap in the Venn diagram. Um, where do you think all that is going? And, and what is your preferred policy regime for dealing with these kinds of things. So I, this actually is in the Venn diagram overlap. I have a, a paper I wrote, co-wrote along with John Samples for the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. It's actually online. It's you know free to read. Uh, Social media regulation in the public interest, some lessons from history, where I take a lot of this history of broadcast regulation and then say, whoa, you know, caution sign, there are people proposing applying similar rules to the internet, to social media, and it, it didn't work out too well when we tried that in broadcasting. It, it, we should be suspicious whether it will have the intended effect and not create unintended negative consequences if we do it with the internet. Um, don't kill the golden goose here. So th- there's, a real, there's a real danger. Um, and it's bipartisan, as you note. It, you have both, uh, there, ever since the 80s, since the Fairness Doctrine r- really was uh, formally allowed to lapse during the Reagan administration, um, there have been uh, Democratic congressmen who have called for a return of the Fairness Doctrine for broadcasting. And this was very purposefully to shut down uh, or control folks like Rush Limbaugh, or, you know, right-wing talk radio. Mm-hmm. Today, there's a revived interest, but it's not so much, I mean, obviously it's not targeted at radio. It's uh, on the left, there's concern about hate speech that they want to use, they want to weaken protections of internet platforms using something called Section 230. They want to weaken those protections to force platforms to suppress any kinds of speech that they determine to be hate speech. And there are kinds of speech that most of us don't want to see in our social media platforms. I mean, I don't like seeing um, various forms of hate speech in my feed either. I don't like seeing, you know, neo-Nazis prating about uh, concentration camp images on a daily basis. That's just not my, it's not my jam. So, but it, part of the problem is, is that that gets really slippery. Sure. If you use government power to say you're not allowed, we're going to violate the first amendment because it's the internet. And so somehow the first amendment doesn't apply, which is what we did with radio, by the way, that we don't have full first amendment rights in broadcast media for most of its history. Um, not to the same extent that we do in print or in newspapers. We weakened the first amendment 
for this new media form. If we do the same thing for the internet, who gets to decide what counts as hate speech? On the grounds that we speech? own the airwaves, and therefore we have a right to... Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, com- it's essentially a commons that we've regulated that we that the federal government owns, and therefore they can regulate the use of yeah. it in a ways that you can't with newsprint or something. Yeah, they created this scarcity principle, which it was was always a post facto justification. There was never actually any scarcity in radio spectrum, but that's a more uh, technical argument. Um, but there are folks who've been proposing something similar for the internet. Uh, anyways, using a variety of legal justifications. But who gets to decide what is hate speech? Just as who gets to decide how much fairness, what exact balance of speech is fair or not? Just as that was a potential tool, the fairness doctrine was a tool, it sounded good on paper, but it was a potential tool for advancing partisan interests um, by defining fairness in a way that helps your side and hurts the other side. The same thing would be true in defining what counts as hate speech. Is someone who is opposed to gay marriage are is that are they allowed to talk about that on social media? Well, some people would define that as hate speech, and so maybe not, right? So that's why you open the Pandora's box if you if you would take that approach. The right wing approach. This comes from senators like uh, Josh Hawley uh, from Sen- uh, Re- Republican senator from Missouri, is to prevent. They want to weaken Section two hundred and thirty protections for internet platforms in order to prevent political discrimination. And so their idea is if we can force the uh, social platforms to, they can't, you know, they can't uh, say you're not allowed to put this on your feed. You can't discriminate against this content because it's conservative Republican. I mean, even, you know, I, I suppose gay marriage would be a political, your position on gay marriage, you can't, a platform can't tell you not to post that or censor it in any way. So it's the exact opposite goal, but they're using the same mechanism, weakening the same protections for internet platforms, First Amendment-based protections, really, for internet platforms to accomplish opposite ends. But in that case as well, you're also opening a Pandora's box because, um, you know, what counts as discrimination against content? If you look at recent lawsuits filed by people like Prager University, uh, which have uh, very little merit, as some of my colleagues have pointed out, the Cato Institute. But if you look at those lawsuits, what they have argued is not that their content hasn't been allowed to be posted, Prager University videos on social media platforms, but that they have not been, the the algorithm hasn't been rewarding them or putting them in people's feeds at the same rate as other content, which is almost impossible to prove because the algorithm is proprietary. I mean, we don't mm-hmm. have Facebook or Google's algorithm. That's not public information. So it's convenient because you can make the allegation. There's no way to counter, to, to prove it uh, without giving away the thing that makes your company a you know, multi-billion dollar company. Um, so there, I mean, imagine if you had a government agency, let's say we did what Josh Hawley wanted us to do and created a government agency to prohibit discrimination. You would have lo- a, an army, a new army we would put a lot of lawyers and employee in DC. There'd be an army of lobbyists banging down the doors of the agency saying, my uh, my outlet was discriminated against by the algorithm. It didn't reach as many people as it should have. You need to threaten Google until they raise Prager University in the rankings, in the search rankings. You need to threaten them with losing their government-issued license to exist. Um, it's a remarkably bad idea. And it, when you create this- Can I ask just yeah. a factual question real quick? Sure. What license? Well, they would create I mean, a like license. radio stations have licenses, right? I mean, yeah. do do any of these platforms go down and get their I want my social media platform license? No, they, does, they, that, they, does such a thing exist? No, it doesn't exist right now, but it could exist. Holly's bill they proposed last summer proposed creating 
uh, uh, I don't think it was called a license, a certification. I mean, that you would, if you didn't have it, if you weren't certified as being non-discriminatory, you would face fines, you know, for every, uh-huh. I think for like every post that was vile, you know, every action you took that was, you know, there'd be some massive fine. So it wasn't called I find a this stuff so infuriatingly dumb. I yeah. mean, I, no, no offense to you. I mean, I'm on oh, the same no. yeah. basic policy position as you are. I just, I find it so tedious. But that it's, it's, it's so historically ahistorical. I mean, it's, it's rooted in a complete ignorance of what this looked like when we tried it in other mass media forms. We did things like this. It went horribly badly. And in fact, to, to double down on that, it went horribly badly for the ver- the political ancestors of the likes of Josh Hawley. So it is, it's rooted in ignorance. It is ill-informed. Uh, but you're getting it from both right and left right now. And so there's a very good chance that we could break the internet. Our political class uh, could break the internet in the next couple of years. Yeah, I, I, and, and so this sort of gets at something that a lot of criticism I get is that I'm spending so much of my time these days, which I admit is new compared to my long history, of focusing a lot of my energy and ire rightward rather than leftward, which is where they want me to be aiming the cannons. And I get that. I would like to get back to the days where I can do that. But my own view, you know, I'm not a libertarian. I, you know, I, I get invited to the Cato parties, but then after a certain hour, they usher me, people like me out. <laughs> um, but um, if conservative, like I, I, I'm a big believer that, that conservatism broadly understood to include classical liberals, People who want to protect the basic principles of the American founding, all that stuff, right? And we can argue about what fits in that paradigm and what doesn't, and that's all fine. But uh, the basic approach that says open, clear rules that apply to everybody should be the way we run a society. If conservatives give up defending that basic sort of worldview, that's more dangerous to me than the left continuing to behave like the left. Because then we're just talking about wh- whose whose team is going to be empowered or rig the system for their benefit against the other side. Yep. And one of the reasons why I care about this is I think that sort of system, that sort of my junta is better than your junta approach to politics is bad on the merits. It's immoral. It's bad. But also, I think we would lose. I mean, I mean, much more open to hearing the arguments from people like my friend Sora Bamari about how, you know, we need to have the government just crush the other side in the culture war and win the culture war by using government power if I thought they could be successful at it. But it's simultaneously wrong on the metaphysics and the morality and it's just wrong on the practical politics. And so, like, when Josh yeah. Hawley talks about this stuff, I'm like, you basically want to create this giant new sort of 1980s Saddam Hussein super gun. Yeah. And then spin it around and give the left the control of the trigger. And it makes no sense to me. No, but no. I, I always feel like I'm missing something when I, I, I read it's, this stuff. It's enough to make me wonder if there's, like, an, an accelerationist bent to it, which is, like... I mean, I, I, I have no grounds for this other than that it just, that's the only thing that makes sense to me, which is that they know this will go disastrously bad. In their heart of hearts, they know that this is a bad idea, but that's kind of the point because if it goes really, really bad, then they'll finally re- get the kind of pressure for true political revolution that that they want. And this is true on both left and right. Like you got to break down people's contentedness, their centrism, their reasonableness. Things have to get bad before they can get better. So there's kind of, I don't know, I, 
I, I don't know that for sure. I know sure. what you're saying. I mean, I, you hate to get into that kind of conspiracy mindset because it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's frankly Leninist, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, the phrase, it's interesting. Uh, I like etymology. The phrase defeatism, I'm pretty sure, you know, these days it means like you're Charlie Brown and you're sure you're going to lose, right? Yeah. But defeatism actually was a serious in- ideological construct that said essentially the worse, the better. Like the, we meet, we need to, I think it was the, some Russian egghead who was like, we need to lose world war one in order to arouse the revolution. Um, and like, you know, on the nose. And, um, I just wrote this thing this is why it's in my head, but I just wrote this thing about the, the, the new attempt to turn the friggin' face mask into the Gadsden flag, mm-hmm. you know, uh, stuff. There is no reason why you should want to make these face masks into a third rail of culture war politics, the mixed metaphors. You know, I mean, it just shouldn't be this flashpoint. Yeah. Unless you actually like the culture war more than the issues that define it. Right. I mean, if you just you just want eternal war. And it got me thinking, which is sort of in your wheelhouse about all this kind of stuff, about what were other issues in the past that were picked up by things like talk radio that should not necessarily have been these hot button issues in the culture war, but were made into them because you got to constantly feed the beast about things to be freaked out about. And one of them was definitely the fluoridation of water, which I get to a certain extent because it does. Oh yeah. There's a part of your reptile mind that does not like the idea of screwing with people's water supply. But then there was, you know, um, you know, the Y2K one was another one that kind of had a bit of that valence to it. Um, but the face mask one just seems, I think mean, historians are going to be looking at that. I mean, there was a woman who wrote for the Washington Times. She's the online editor of the Washington Times or something. And she wrote that if you wear a face mask, you face mask, you are surrendering to the Asiatic values <laughs> of the Chinese communists. <laughs> That, that is like sounds Dr. like something... strange love stuff right there. Yeah, it is. It? it is. Yeah, precious bodily <laughs> fluids. And yeah, yeah, that sounds like something my uh, my broadcasters would have written in the 60s. That's great. Um, which, of course, the irony of fluoridation is that today it's this, you know, more left-wing circles, like crunchy progressive moms in California. Gwyneth Paltrow doesn't like fluoridation. And then right. and 50 years ago it was Carl McIntyre and the John Birch Society didn't like fluoridation. So it's funny how these things, you know, flip over time. I, Which is no, another example of how the paranoid style is not oh, yeah. an ideological construct on one side or the it's, other. It's fluid. Yeah. It's very fluid. All these anti-vaxxers. Fluid. I mean, they're more anti-vaxxers yeah. on the left than there are on the right, but there 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 are a lot on both sides. Yeah. You know? Well, it's it's the way I tend to put it is that our impulse, it's a very natural human impulse, is that we spend our lives learning, we memorizing a script. We all we're all actors on a stage, and we've got a script. And we worked really hard to memorize that script, and we understand it. And we did we we took zero improv classes. You know, we're not part of the groundlings or anything. So we got our script. We spent our whole life memorizing it and learning nothing else. And anytime something happens, like the 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 stage play gets disrupted, someone r- streaks onto the stage and disrupts the whole thing. Our temptation is always, well, what do we do? And things are uncertain. Oh, we pull out the script. We just try to get back on reading that yeah. script. And so in ideological terms, that's what we all do with our politics. We have a script. We have our kind of impulses that we've built up over the years. And 
every now and again, there'll be some truly exogenous event, something like a global pandemic, a once in a century level global pandemic. It disrupts us for a little bit. We're like, uh, we stop reading our script for a second. We're all unsure. And you could see that with the pandemic for the first couple of weeks, there were all these like stillborn attempts to fit it back into the script in various ways, but it wasn't quite Mm -hmm. working because it was too disruptive. The script didn't seem to apply. But you give it enough time and people will find a way to pull back up the script and start reading it again. And so the reaction to the pandemic, there is a script that is popular on, you know, various scripts that are popular on the right. There's a libertarian script. I've been uh, bothered by the number of fellow libertarians who have come out against the masks, which is if it's the state doing it, it's bad. Ergo, state order is interested in making people wear masks. Ergo, wearing masks is bad. It's a very simplistic uh, uh, narrative, but they're reading from a familiar script. And so all of us have both left and right. We all have our scripts we want to revert to. In terms of the, uh, the history of this, I'll give one example from the book. It's one of my favorites. I call it the, the Great Polish Ham Boycott 1962. Uh, the Kennedy administration wanted to use trade as a tool to peel away the Eastern European nations out from under the Iron Curtain, the Eastern Bloc. Uh, some of those countries were puppet governments of the communists. Some were independent communist governments like Yugoslavia. But it was this idea that we'll use trade to peel them away. We've done something similar with Cuba in the past, using trade to try to undermine the Castro regime, et cetera. Whether or not it works is besides the point. But he was going to uh, basically allow, rather than having strict sanctions all these, you know, on Poland and on Yugoslavia and et cetera, um, he was going to allow them to sell goods in the U.S. And the idea is they would become more loyal to the U.S. because of their reliance on trade with us than they were to the Soviet bloc. It kind of did work. I mean, Poland's solidarity movement was partly encouraged by the fact that the interests of Polish workers was to look to the West and not to the East. So, But anyways, in the 60s, they obviously don't know that's going to happen. Kennedy uh, so does this. And so you're getting all these like uh, Yugoslavian wicker baskets and folding chairs and Polish hams. Apparently ham is a big product of Poland at the time. Who knew? Um, so they're importing this stuff for the first time in decades from Eastern Europe. And you have um, uh, at, at, at executive power. So Kennedy is given by Congress the power to unilaterally adjust tariff rates and give most favored nation trade status to countries. It's actually the same set of powers that Trump has been using to sure. raise tariffs on Canada and others. So it's there's a certain ironic parallelism there. Um, and People, uh, conservatives in the U.S. uh, find this deeply concerning because it involves trade with communist nations. And so there's this whole boycott movement that I describe in the book where suburban housewives all over the country take little cards with words printed on them like, always buy your communist products at Supergiant. Then they would go to Supergiant and put the cards, just litter the place with cards, daring them to call the police on a bunch of respectable (laughs) suburban housewives, which, of course, the store owners weren't interested in doing creating this big protest movement that ultimately forces Congress to censure Kennedy. It's a real black eye for the Kennedy administration. Um, But what's interesting about that is the way in which right-wing radio didn't start that movement. That movement started with a chiropractor in Miami, of all places. Um, But the right-wing radio heard about it and amplified it, turned it into a national movement. And the the, the angle they took on it was the reason why you should be worried about trade with Eastern Europe. And and there were lots of arguments that you could make, reasonable arguments you can make against trade with Eastern Europe. I happen to agree with JFK on this one, but you could make respectable arguments against this policy. But what they went with was every time you buy an ounce of Polish ham, 
it was as good as buying a bullet going into the gun of a Viet Cong soldier in Vietnam, which is big if true. Yeah, big if true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah big if true being the most the uh, operative <laughs> part of that. So it was a conspiracy theory that relied on simplistic beliefs about the communist bloc, as if, anyways, that's just not how the communist right. world works. It's hard all. to get the. It's hard to get the the. The red string connecting the push pins on the conspiracy board from Polish ham to Viet Cong bullet. Yeah, yeah, it's really hard yeah, to do, yeah. but it didn't matter. It was a again. There's a script which is anything that might potentially help the communists must be bad, and we're going to take the most outlandish, you know, conspiracy theory about how that that world operates and blast it on the airwaves to great success. So that's always been a temptation, um, and it's always going to be a temptation for for both sides of the aisle. So I, I should back up one bit and say, while I'm not a big fan of the true paranoid style of crazy conspiracy theories and all of that kind of stuff, and I think the attempt to turn face masks into these symbols of oppression and tyranny and all that is ridiculous. Um, there is something about the American character I love, which is that instinctual suspicion. If the man is telling me to do something my knee jerk response should be, wait a second, let me check it out. You know, there is something yeah. kind of awesome in the American character about that. And in, like any tendency, it can get hyper attenuated. It can get adrenal and go too far, but there mm -hmm. are plenty of places in America, like rejecting the metric system. There are all these things that I talk about all the time on here that I like, I kind of like about America is that we're just, we're ornery, you know, and, um, you know, Alexis de Tocqueville said the American is the Englishman left alone. I, I, I like that aspect of us. And one place where I think a healthy expression of it could be is in the use of ExpressVPN. Because ExpressVPN allows you to hide your ISP address from the uh, prying eyes of fairness doctrine loving big government. So we all know how ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, right? And if you don't, you should know about it because that's the real reason to get ExpressVPN is that it hides your IP address. It lets you um, avoid people or governments um, or the globalists from tracking your online activity. It's really important. Um, but it also allows you to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Now that so many of us are stuck at home, it's only a matter of time until you run out of stuff to watch on Netflix. So this whole week, you could have been watching Doctor Who on the British version of Netflix or Rick and Morty on the French version. It's, it's pretty simple. All you do is fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK or France, refresh Netflix, and bada-bing, you're there. See, ExpressVPN hides your IP address and it lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries, so just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service, Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD, no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all of your devices, your phones, your media consoles, your smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on a personal device or on the big screen, wherever you are. So if you visit my special link right now at expressvpn.com slash remnant, not dingo, I apologize, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support this show, watch what you want, 
Protect yourself from the revenuers and use ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash remnant. We thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Um, okay, so I, I just have a couple other like last bit questions here. Um, what changes in the law or the culture or the technology? I mean, I, I have my own folk understanding of this, but that makes Rush Limbaugh possible. Is it just that it took that long to rebuild the institutions? Um, because Rush comes what in the 80s? Yeah. Yeah. Early, it's like 79. He first gets a broadcaster job. But it's like a baseball or something. I can't remember, yeah. but it's like, it's really in the eighties and that he, that he takes off. And, um, was there a repeal of legislation? Was it a technological thing? I mean, people say that he saved AM radio. Um, I always thought that was WKRP, but um, WKRP in Cincinnati. What is the story there? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so by through the mid seventies, the fairness doctrine, as as discussed, has has been used to really shut down overtly political right wing radio. So there is radio stations; it's just too much of a landmine. Uh, so there is a famous case involving WXUR that goes to the Supreme Court that um, or, um, that involves the, the FCC taking a radio station license for violations of the Fairness Doctrine. Um, most of the time, it didn't get that far. But all the radio station owners, they saw that and said, ooh, that's, there, any risk is too much risk. Um, so a right-wing, they, they, they just start dropping right-wing broadcasters en masse. So right-wing radio, there's this big scissura between the end of this period I'm describing by the early 70s and the return of overtly right-wing political radio by the 1980s. And the key here is both... Um, so the, the Reagan administration in 1987 officially drops the Fairness Doctrine rules. They, say, they formally say, you know, we're not following the Fairness Doctrine anymore, the Reagan's FCC. Um, but it actually starts before that. Folks often think of uh, Ronald Reagan as the great deregulator because of what he did with air traffic controllers and the like. But it's actually Jimmy Carter who's the yeah, great Carter deregulator. Carter does a lot of deregulation, the airline yeah. stuff, particularly, yeah. right? Airlines. Thank, yeah. thank him for your uh, for your craft beer. I mean, he deregulates the beer industry. That's why we all have these lovely IPAs and the like. But he does the same thing. Uh, Carter's uh, FCC unofficially just says we're not going to enforce the fairness doctrine anymore and that percolates throughout the industry um so that's when you start to see the rise of more overtly political radio and television broadcasting again this is where it's actually a protest against the fairness doctrine uh in texas where um jerry falwell and uh some of the other founders of the moral majority that's where they go to this protest about you know against the fairness doctrine and that's where they had the idea that we need a moral majority to retake America. So there's a, actually a direct connection between the pressure to push back against the fairness doctrine, the end of the fairness doctrine, and the re, the rise of Pat Robertson, Rush, uh, um, uh, Jerry Falwell, and others who start using. Jerry Falwell has been on the airwaves since the '60s, but he's not nearly mm -hmm. as political as he feels free to be after by the late '70s. So that's the key change: is that the regulations. Uh, they, they're no longer being enforced by the late 1970s and they're formally dropped by the 80s. And so now Rush Limbaugh has the freedom. I mean, he always had the freedom to say it, but now he's not going to get the kind of uh, ec economic backlash that comes with the, the, the fairness doctrine and its chilling effect. Um, yeah. 
There's another interesting question at the time. I always find this um, compelling, which is why does talk radio become synonymous with right-wing talk radio? Um, and it, th- those who study this, this, the, the time period, uh, Brian Rosenwald is a friend, a friend of mine. He, he has a book out about the time period. In the 80s, it wasn't exclusively right-wing or, or nearly as disproportionately right-wing. It was really quite mixed, both le- radical left-wing and radical right-wing voices in the talk radio space. But what happens is, and they're both kind of freed by the end of the Fairness Doctrine. I mean, uh, w- w- with the Fairness Doctrine, you couldn't have much of current broadcasting either on radio or television. There would be no political commentary comedy shows. Like John Stewart could not exist, or or John Oliver, or any you know, or their they couldn't exist in the Fairness Doctrine style world um, regulatory landscape. So both sides are kind well, of their shows couldn't. They wouldn't. Physically yeah. dematerialized. Yes, they would physically yeah. dematerialize. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they, yeah, they, their shows couldn't exist. And so both sides, both radical left and radical right, if you will, are freed by the end of these repressive regulations. Um, but the reason why the right becomes so dominant on talk radio is that uh, it has no competition. It has no government subsidized competition. Now, that might already trigger what I'm saying here, but left-wing talk radio has someone to compete with for listeners, and that is national public radio. So the Mm -hmm. government was subsidizing, it had been since the late 70s, had been subsidizing a center-left media outlet or set of media outlets, right? The national public radio. And so if you are a local radio station booking programs and, uh, you know, they're all going to pay you about the same thing, but one side is just going to attract way more listeners because there is no center-right government-sponsored radio voice in the 1980s and 90s. I mean, there are some center-right organizations, but they're not subsidized by the government. And so it's always easier and more lucrative for stations to book conservative broadcasters rather than liberal broadcasters. So NPR is why talk radio is so liberal because it, it basically cut the potential audience for left-wing talk radio hosts, which did exist and still do exist, but it cut their audience in half and made it yeah. harder for them. To Why talk radio is so uh, conservative? Because they took radio stations. Yeah, I mean, I am. Um, yeah, I think that's all correct. Um, but sort of where we began was only telling part of the story. I mean, you know, part of the explanation I've always used about it is one is that right. I mean, in particularly. And this has always been a problem for NPR, just as an aside note, like Pacifica Radio, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which like you listen to five minutes. I don't even know if it's still around, but like, you know, every time I ever listened by accident to Pacifica Radio, because a lot of NPR stations would public radio stations would play it, even though it was not part of the NPR system or any of that kind of stuff. But you listen to Pacifica Radio and you think like at the end of the next sentence, the host is going to talk about and that's why we have to strangle the last priest with the, you know, with his own entrails or something, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. and it is so crazy left wing. And all the average listener thinks is, oh, my gosh, this is public radio. And they don't make these distinctions that this isn't like marketplace radio. You know, there are different things there. But um, but there's another larger point I was trying to get to, which is, um, you know, in the whenever there is a media innovation. Um, the first people into the breach, and I'm being overly broad, but uh, the first people into the breach to exploit it and come up with new and interesting things are pornographers. And then close behind them, conservatives. And um, 
So, and, and the reason for that isn't that conservatives are like super tech savvy or anything like that, or that pornographers really are either. It's that um, new means of distribution of media um, are going to benefit the, the people who are locked out of the normal mainstream conduits of media. Yeah. And so you can do this history of right wing media that, you know, were, the right was way ahead on direct mail. The right was way ahead on weird newsletters, including like the Ron Paul craziness and all of that kind of stuff. Um, uh, you know, and again, pornographers weren't big into newsletters for obvious reasons, but they were huge into things like VHS tapes, mm -hmm. you know, and um, there's and one of the reasons why the, you know, at National Review, we leapt into online stuff a lot earlier than a lot of other mainstream places is that we sort of had this history of trying to reach an audience that couldn't find us through traditional mainstream channels. And, yeah. um, and, but there's a political sociology that comes with that, which is that, and I think this is one of the reasons why the right is such a mess these days, is that you get this orientation of permanent re rebellion. Right. Is that it becomes it sort of gets to the mask thing. Right. I mean, there's no reason to make the mask a symbol of oppression and not wearing a mask a symbol of rebellion, except unless you're just basically addicted to the rebellion BS. And so the 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 talk radio thing. I mean, the vantage that Rush had is that the New York Times, NBC, CBS, Washington Post, Newsweek, Time, they're constantly giving him ammo to talk about. And then you remember when, like, what was Radio America with Gene Garofalo and all that kind of, it launched, yeah. and I predicted its death because the problem with the left is you end up having to defend the New York Times. That's boring. You have to defend PBS. And because of the nature of political correctness, the only people you're allowed to make fun of are, you know, the pale penis people. It's like, yeah. you know, Christians and men and maybe Mormons, you know, and, um, and beyond that, and meanwhile, Rush gets to make fun. I mean, sometimes I don't think he's funny, but you know, if you're if you reject political correctness, you have just so many more targets. And it's one of the reasons why the left has the problems it does. It has become so institutionalized that its concept, its rebels have to be so far left that everyone thinks they're crazy, or they end up having to defend the various sort of status quo stuff. And I think that's one of the reasons why they love the Trump era is because you actually. Finally, there's a resistance that you can, you know, be part of in a way that at least suburban women don't think is as crazy as it might have been when you were declaring the resistance against George H.W. Bush. Right. I mean, that was a little weirder. To your point, I mean, I think you're you're on to something here. And, and to your point, uh, a great historical illustration of what you're talking about. There's a story named Robert Darnton who wrote a book called The Literary Underground of the Ancien Regime. Um, and in there, he talks about... Uh, the utterly vital role of pornographers to the French Revolution. And basically, you have all these underemployed wannabe philosophers, philosophes, who um, are on what he calls Grub Street. I mean, there's not enough like fancy salon jobs uh, in like the wealthy people's salons in Paris. There's not enough government sinisters for philosophers. And so most of them are starving philosophers. And what pays the bills is writing pornography that's deeply political. <laughs> so, 
little cartoon of Louis the Fourteenth having sex with a horse. I mean, like it's pornography, but it's also political. And so that's that doesn't the, do much for me. I just want to be clear about that. That's not, not, not my too. bag, baby. Monarchist bestiality. That's good. Um, yeah. But no. But th- this was um, one of the key energies that that propelled the French Revolution, according to to Darton. So. Yeah. You have what you have is, and I think the phenomenon you're pointing to, it's not inherently right wing or left wing thing. What it is, as you point out, is that people on the kind of political margins that new forms of mass media have uh, create a moment of opportunity, a space for them. It, they can't rely on the old forms, which are dominated by you know other you know uh, established ideologies or established institutions and the like. And those established institutions are slow to respond because the new media form undermines, well, why would you try to put significant investment into this new media form when you dominate the current one? You want to hold on as long as possible. It's why, you know, Kodak sits on the digital camera for decades and it ultimately kills itself, right? right? Same basic phenomenon, but in media. Um, But the new media form offer, you know, these marginalized voices are willing to experiment because why not? What do they have to lose? And this helps both left and right. So like today, I mean, I think a good example of this on the left is uh, who were the first people to adopt the new soon to be, I mean, growing increasingly dominant political uh, campaign uh, fundraising model, you know, like Act Blue funding progressive candidates. It's radical left wing folks uh, who start right. who, who try it first. It's Howard Dean, and now it's Bernie Sanders. Um, the radical left was willing to try this new model, and that's not media. Now, in media, there's a reason why in podcasting, what are the most dominant political podcasts? It is not yet the the, the remnant, though I'm sure T- <laughs> TBD in a few months. But I mean, one day. But you know, the, the in a sense, you're from one of the previous dominant media forms in kind of conservative intellectual thought, National Review, you're playing catch-up to some some uh, to other in the podcasting space. We're all kept playing catch-up, people like you and me, um, to folks like, uh, you, you look at the top political podcasts, it's people like Joe Rogan, who represents a kind of new style-ish mm-hmm. right-wing uh, point of view, or uh, left-wing podcasters, like you think of all the socialist podcasts, like... Um, uh, the dirtbag left guys, you know, I'm talking mm-hmm. the Chapo trap house and the like. Yeah. So these are new media forms. The podcast is itself a new media form. It's a moment of opportunity for radicals from both left and right to find a niche there when they were basically denied access to the, to the discourse um, by the you know media gatekeepers in print or in cable broadcasting and so on. So it, yeah. I, it, it's, it's always a moment of possibility and whether right or left will do a better job at it just kind of depends. It's historically contingent. Who knows? Yeah. See the one, one super advantage that we've got on the remnant over some of those other places is that while it's not pornography, we have a rich tradition here of discussing Bigfoot erotica. <laughs> and uh, we think that gives us a kind of edge. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, transgressive it's subversive it's not porn it's it's erotica which is different and um yeah yeah well it's sort of like i think literally the first joke my mom ever told me was what's the difference between erotic and kinky erotic is when you use a feather kinky is when you use the whole chicken we don't we don't go whole chicken on this podcast but every now and then we go you know a little bigfoot feather kind of anyway uh Paul, thanks so much for coming on. The, the, the book again is The Radio Right, 
Um, hold on, I gotta search for the. Why don't you tell me again? It's Paul Matsko, the radio right. What's the subtitle? How a band of broadcasters took on the federal government and built the modern conservative movement. And it's on sale. Uh, the Kindle version is live. The hardcover's not out yet, but it's on sale on Kindle for fourteen fifty-seven. So for less than fifteen bucks, a book that'll blow your mind. It's not you know Bigfoot erotica level blow your mind, but it's uh, on that end of the spectrum. Yeah, and. Uh, and anyway, it, I, I promise I'm going to finish it. And I'd like to have you back on to talk about some other stuff because you actually know about this podcast space stuff, which I'm obviously interested in for business reasons. But I don't think we've ever actually met. Have we met in real life? No, no, not as far as I know. Uh, I mean, I've been in D.C. Yeah, for two like, years I, now. But. I apologize for the question. I, just, I go to like, you know, you go to these some of these D.C. Yeah. things and you meet people. Yeah. And then 12 years later, someone says. You know, oh, don't you remember we met at that panel? I was like, no, yeah. Well, there there was that duel with pistols at dawn we had on the side, the banks of the Potomac uh, last year. Yeah, that that, (laughs) weirdly, that doesn't actually narrow it down. (laughs) But um, anyway, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for being on. And um, uh, everyone should get the book if they're interested in this sort of thing. Okay, so Paul has left the virtual studio. And um, I got to go run to write a column and dig some shallow graves. Uh, But that's not important right now. Uh, If you guys can come to the dispatch.com to sign up for the free stuff or even become a paid member, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you can't swing being a paid member these days, we totally understand. These are difficult times. Um, If you are a paying paid member of the dispatch, uh, you could read the G file I wrote on Wednesday, which got deep in the weeds and all of this stuff. And I may talk about in the audio G file on Friday, um, about the masks, about, uh, Rusty Reno from first things and his claim that, um, not wanting to be infected, um, or wearing a mask to avoid being affected makes you a coward but also that if you want to avoid infecting other people, that makes you a coward, um, which is, you know, again, it's very weird for a guy named Goldberg to be a, um, to be more Catholic than the editor of a Catholic magazine. But I am pretty sure that, that like not wanting to make the, the, the vulnerable and the sick sicker or dead is is difficult to find in strict Catholic doctrine. Um, I I'm open to correction on this, but um, I think this is a sign of one of the weird things that's going on on the right. And I talked a little bit with Paul about this. And if you want the greater context, you could check out the G file and uh, maybe become a paid member in the process. Other than that, um, really appreciate the listeners, the feedback. If you want to comment at iTunes. Um, where there's a weird mix of, of pro and con stuff these days. Um, some of it I don't think is actually from people who listen to the show, at least the con stuff. Uh, but if you can give us a good review at all those various places, that would be great. Um, I do read all of the comments at the dispatch from uh, listeners. And, um, and we really appreciate the support, particularly on this monologue thing that I do, which I still feel really uncomfortable doing. Um, and, uh, other than that, the, the, the dog say hi, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.
Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, my minions will take that cough out. Uh, 